intentional growth when it comes to a business means growing for the right reasons with an end in mind on a path that I can see. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Are you running a lifestyle business that in itself is just a job or are you focused on growing a more valuable asset and treating your company as an investment? And that is exactly what we're going to be unpacking in today's episode as well as the next couple episodes. We are entering theme two, which is are you running a lifestyle business or creating a more valuable asset? And today on the show, we have my business partner and dear friend, Pat Hobby, where we're going to be introducing the concept of creating a more valuable asset and how to view your company as a financial asset using these three financial targets that we talk about in principle two of the intentional growth principles. If you have not listened to Pat and on the show in the past, Pat's background, he was a fractional CFO for decades. He did some acquisitions at one of the companies that continued to get larger. They ended up turning it into an ESOP by selling it to their employees. And then a couple years later, selling it to a private equity firm. We had a short stint there before uh, going and becoming the director of shared services at a local private equity firm before he met me, where we created the five intentional growth principles and Arcona uh, a handful of years ago. And so Pat and I are going to be teeing up this concept of how do you view your company as a financial asset. So we're going to be talking about concepts to help us understand that. And then in the episode two of theme two, I have Ali Nasir on the show, who is the CEO of Ultra Vista, going to be talking about from a financial wealth perspective, what it means to view and treat your company as a financial asset. And then episode three, I've got Rob Dubay back on the show, who is a client as well as Cindy Banshee. And they are both going to talk about as they worked and treated and as they've been building their company into a more valuable asset, how has that helped them replace themselves as a CEO and then become into the owners and visionary box? And then how it helped, like what helped them from the conce- the concepts and the training to the, actually the execution and the finance and then the leadership roles and then how their decision making is different now that they're viewing their company as a financial asset. So that's kind of the overview over the next couple episodes. But as it relates to t- today's episode, I'm very excited because Pat and I really help I hope to help everybody that's listening understand some key concepts that you can pull forward into the next couple episodes. So we're going to be talking about the mindset of how what, what does it mean to actually view your company as an asset. And then we're going to talk about the three financial targets that help calibrate the, uh, the business as an asset. We're going to be talking about basic valuation formulas and how to actually get into the numbers and how to view your company as an asset without having to sell it. And then we're going to talk about how to view that in the three financial statements and then how to then integrate enterprise equity value and net proceeds into the three financial statements so that way you can truly see your company as a financial asset on a day-to-day and a month-to-month basis and then you can project it forward and change your decision making so that way you know that what you're doing is going to bring you closer to your goals instead of take them further away so you can create wealth enjoy work and make an impact so thank you so much for tuning in if you have not checked out the intentional growth 
uh, financial assessment. It's on the show notes as well as on the Arcona.io website where we have an assessment that grades you on the components of the financial structure as well as the results page has got a bunch of videos of what good looks like and what Pat and I are talking about. So thanks everybody for tuning in and we are on to episode one of theme two. Thanks everybody and I hope you enjoy my and Pat's conversation. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. So here we are, Mr. Pat Abbey. I'm very excited for this. We were just saying that uh, at the point of this recording, it was two years ago that we recorded the training and you just said, yeah, I don't need to do those anytime soon because that was, uh, I don't think you thought you were going to be a movie star after. <laughs> I still haven't watched them since we recorded them originally. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this conversation and how, excited I was to have about thinking about your business like a financial asset because I'm just going to tell a quick little story to tee this up because I I was in I was in the uh, training that you and I were in about you know when you were sitting there at the private equity firm the private equity hat on and I got out of the one of the tra- one of the training breakouts Pat and I I called uh my that point business partner I was like you know they're actually talking about businesses like assets <laughs> like I actually like brought it up and I'm like whoa and it, I also brought it up on this uh, interview I did with uh, Dr. Craig Everett from Pepperdine University when I saw him at a conference too. And there was a bunch of private equity uh, folks and they were all talking about asset classes, but like businesses. And and I really kind of just teamed up. I'm like, why is it that founders and first-time entrepreneurs don't necessarily get ingrained like that from day one? It's so interesting. And so like kind of I don't know if there's really a question. They're more just kind of like how interesting it was to me, me going through that journey of going, this is an actual asset that we can do something about. And you and I have talked about this annual income versus long-term value creation as kind of like a lifestyle business versus, you know, a long-term asset. Why don't you kind of give your definition in whatever way you want to of like, what's a lifestyle annual income business versus something that is got a, someone's got a different mindset of a long-term value creation. Yeah, I I think part of it comes from a lot of founders or business owners, they start a business and it starts out with an idea. They they may be the only person doing it. And then they, you know, it grows over time and a lot of times they view it as a job and it may have started out that way where they, you know, an HVAC, HVAC company or a plumber or a an accountant or, you know, anybody who they start out and they're doing the work and over time, you know, 10 years goes by and they're like, I've got a business now, you know, but they've got that mindset where they've never viewed the business as an asset. It's in my opinion, the number one thing holding people back is they're viewing the business as a lifestyle business and as a job, as opposed to probably their largest asset. And, and they don't they don't think of it. They don't think of it that way. And when they do, they just are looking at it through a completely different lens. So when you and I you and I talk a lot over the last couple of years as we've gravitated toward like what's resonating with people like you and I've said so many times, like we're just regurgitating things that 
We haven't invented, but just make. Oh, we invented all this stuff. (laughs) Okay, sarcasm and a couple, couple minutes. Should we put a little bell go off when there's sarcasm? (laughs) But this lifestyle business solving for annual income. What's your definition of that? The definition is when the business owner is just looking to see how much cash they can take out in a year, and that ends up being a roller coaster. Because they may have a really good year and they take out a bunch of cash and the next year they can't and they don't understand why. And it's frustrating and not realizing those things are tied together. The fact they drained the company of cash one year and the fact the next year they didn't invest in the things they needed to invest in. And the next year there's not much cash to go around or they hit an economic downturn or something. So it, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. It's a, it's a way to have another boat or a cabin or a fancy car because that's how they've come to view the value of what that business brings to their life. Mm-hmm. How, how much, what can I buy this year? Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people who start a business and, and own a business and run it, they deserve to be rewarded for their hard work and, and the risk that they took and the, the sleepless nights and worrying about making payroll and, and rent and all those things. So I'm not saying don't, don't reward yourself, but, if you shift your mindset away from, okay, I have a job and it's going to lead to a different discussion here and I get paid for doing that job, but I want to view the business when I'm an owner, I want to view the business as an asset. The goal of owning any asset, most assets, not any asset, most assets or at least investments is for them to grow. Mm -hmm. You buy Apple Mm -hmm. stock, you want it to be worth more in five years than it is today, or you wouldn't buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I say, the the their ownership in the business um, probably represents the largest single asset in anybody's portfolio, mm-hmm. and and to not think of it that way is shortchanging yourself when you're when you're thinking about what decisions do I need to make related to this business. And I, and I we're going to unpack some of the concepts to help people with that journey of thinking it like an asset. And like I think Pat, that I think instinctively everybody. I believe knows it to a degree. Like this is my largest asset. This thing will be worth something at some point, but they kind of like blindside themselves and like, or convince themselves that it's, they won't be able to know what that value is till way down the road. So why pay attention? And then it's more the immediate gratification of taking cash out. And I think one thing that I've come to, like you come to realize when you had said that it's, it's okay to be rewarded and take some money out of the business what I've seen is it's the complete disconnect with the expectations and reality. It's like, it's like I get to do all of these things and take all the money out of the business and have all these perks. But obviously, Pat, this thing's going to be worth a bunch of money down the road. And so there's no retirement outside the business. There's this assumption that someone's going to take this huge pot of gold and give it to them when they didn't treat it like an asset, like something that needs reinvestment, like real estate as, as an example. And that's where I think it's this disconnect of like how to, cause like going back to your point, like you could solve for annual income, take as much money out of the business, but if you're going to reinvest that and take money out and you don't expect it to be worth 5 million bucks, that's okay. Yeah. It's okay. But how many clients have we had though, where the business owner has a value on their personal balance sheet of what their business is <laughs> that when it gets right down to it is not even in the same ballpark. And, 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 they're living under a false assumption and it's, it's mm-hmm. sad because I've seen it where they get to a point where either through health or life circumstances or age or whatever, 
they get the point like, okay, now I'm going to monetize this asset. And it's just not the number that they, they thought it would be. Mm -hmm. And, and they didn't take care of it. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't grow it as an asset, you know, or make the decisions and develop the strategies and, and nurture it in a way that would make it be worth it is their choices. It's not a, it's not an either or it's just Mm -hmm. finding that balance um, between that. And, and so, and we're going to, we're going to break down through this conversation. Some, like I said, some of the concepts on how, how to actually start to get clarity on that asset and how that, how that relates to your lifestyle, having fun, creating wealth, making an impact, like the things we keep talking about that are so important. Let's talk about ownership versus management roles. And we got to start there. And you, like you and I there. have come. Yeah, I'm getting ready to, there. to text you in the chat to say, let's go to ownership versus <laughs> All management. right, get to the point, Ryan. Stop, <laughs> yeah. Stop no, no, yeah. No, 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 no. It was, it was not that. But so like we have so many people that conflate these two roles. And so I don't even honestly, like, where, how do you want to start? Because like I, I, when you and I were chatting, like I was literally driving home from a meeting yesterday and you were talking about how some people are having some issues that we know. And it's like, I'm like, why didn't you ever struggle with this? You specifically. And I think that that'll kind of lead us into the other, th- other topics, but like, I, I, I don't know. One of my earliest clients when I was a fractional CFO involved a brother and a sister and they had confused ownership versus a management role. And it was just obvious to me. The problems they were having just stemmed from that confusion. And so I can remember this was in the 90s, sorry. Before you keep, go- before you keep going, can you just break down ownership versus management role, just kind of give some clarity on what your definition is of that? Yeah, I mean, ownership is just owning some stock or LLC interest in a company. And... Uh, it's not like me owning 10 shares of Apple stock. It is, it, you know, in a privately held company, it is, are you an owner? Do you have a, a seat at the, at the capital table? And do you get a K-1? And do you, you know, all those kind of things. It is literally being an owner. And there are active owners and passive owners. So I could be a, a, a part owner in an HVAC company in Chicago, Never step foot in the place. I just invest money in it, and I'm you know I own ten percent, and I get ten percent of the income that's allocated. I get ten percent of the distributions. Just a passive owner that's invested in a company. You can also be an an active participant in the business, where I'm the chief financial officer of this HVAC company. Yeah, I own I own equity in it. But I'm also active in the management of the business or an employee of the business. And is that what you meant by active? Because active and employee, yeah. W-2, active you're getting wages. Yeah, actively participating in the running of the business is what I mean by that. Payroll taxes and all, all the like, right? W-2, you know, that kind of thing. Where things go wrong is where people confuse their role as an owner and their role as an employee with a job at the business. They are totally different, but people have conflated those to the point where they think, oh, because I'm an owner, I get to be, I get to have this kind of say in the running of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and 
I think way back, I've, I've just seen this enough where... You can go back to your story. Some of the conflicts um, uh, between the brother and the sister were, you know, one would think, and I'm not picking on one or the other, one would think, oh, I'm an owner, so I get to have a say in everything that goes on in the company, even though I'm in this area and my other, my sibling runs this area, I get to have a say with everything, you know, um, and, you know, because I own part of it. And and their job is to run sales or run the back office or run operations or whatever it is. That's your job. Go do your job. You get paid a paycheck to do a job. You don't get a paycheck for being an owner. Well, and let's just, we don't have to spend a ton of time on the paycheck part, Pat, but like so many times, you know, entrepreneurs and business owners play a lot of games with their, with their wages, right? It's either they reduce them to 50 grand as a CEO, so they don't have to pay a bunch of taxes or they, they can, they, so they're always, you know, doing different things potentially with the role. Maybe get walk into like, how do you get a clear picture on what the actual wage structures and what the wage should be for market comp in order to get the visibility? Because this is part of the dominoes that need to be put in place before. Well, we get to there's just a lot of sources these days from Chamber of Commerce studies to industry studies that all kinds of play. And now with, you know, Indeed and everything, you can do a bunch of searches. You can you can you can get very reason at very reasonable costs compensation study that says, okay, this role, the the sales manager at a company in this industry at this size and this area, the pays between X and Y. You know, and and it's a good idea to do that because it takes it takes the the um, vagueness out of determining what gets paid. We had a client that um I don't want to say too much because I don't want to disclose who it is. There are two brothers who owned it. One was active in the business and one was not. And they both got paid the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just confuses everything. But you can you should set the pay at what the job is. So in that example, one shouldn't get in a paycheck at all. One shouldn't get anything at all. But even another example, if you you know, if uh if if a, if a brother and a sister worked in a business and the sister was the CEO. And the brother was an accounting clerk. They should get paid for what they're doing, not for the fact mm-hmm. that they're 50-50 owners. Mm-hmm. And that's where so much conflict gets comes into play when all of a sudden one party starts resenting the other. And when they walk in the door, they've got their owner hat on, not their employee hat. Other employees are confused. You know, in my example, they're like, okay, you're the accounting clerk and you're coming over here asking me about running the sales department. You know, I don't get that because you don't know anything. I think our pam- I think our marketing pamphlets should look like this, Pat. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> you're the accounting clerk. <laughs> you're the accounting clerk and an important job. But, you know, one that one that deserves the right pay and secondly, has the right level of authority. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't want, you know, um, when you when you have two or three or four owners, an employee sees one of those people show up at their door or their office or their cubicle or their desk. And I've seen it just create so much confusion. Mm -hmm. Everybody's trying to satisfy every owner. Mm -hmm. Well, owners shouldn't be walking in the front door every day. You can have an owner's meeting once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is. But the people who walk in the door are the employees. Mm -hmm. Well, if they they think about your old your old world in private equity, you guys would go buy companies, and none of your investors were planning on sitting on the management team at all. They just wanted the returns. And so 
I think, you know, as we continue to progress some of these concepts, ownership versus management roles, unbelievably necessary. EOS has got like the visionary or the visionary and the integrator, which are jobs, CEO, CEO, whatever you want to call them. And then there's the owner's box, which is equity in the asset, which you don't have to have a job in the business for. But then there's three principles, or in principle two, there are three targets that we talk about. So principle one being your your drivers, which we've already covered in the previous series. And then this one about the financial targets, there are three financial targets to measure, monitor it. And I think that they help calibrate the visibility, kind of like triangulate maybe is a good word of like the, the value of the business as an asset. And you want to talk through what they are and then because we'll, what we're going to do is we're then we're going to get into some practical, like how to view the company and the financials. But like for now, I think this is a good concept yeah, to start and with. Before we go there, one more comment about um, uh, we started talking about lifestyle business versus versus, you know, uh, trading as an asset. When you conflate your ownership role with your job as an employee, mm-hmm. that's where you lose the clarity between you know, when I'm an employee, I would do a good job, get a paycheck and, and get a raise every year and earn my bonus. When mm-hmm. I'm thinking like an owner, I want to grow the value of this asset. And when you have those confused or conflated together, that's when I think people lose the ability to think about, oh, what does this really mean to me? And in the, in, in the long term of my life as an employee and my ownership in this business. And they're completely separate too. And actually, this is a great point totally to separate. bring up where like totally separate. And when someone calls me in the amount of conversations where someone says, I want out, and I'm like, out of what? Your job or your asset? And they're like, uh, I don't know. I'm like, well, if you're clipping it's million dollar thinking coupons, about it clearly. Right. And, and and I haven't had anybody, I'm trying to think if I have, but like somebody that's clipping a million dollar coupons, not having a job, having no stress, they might have a reason to, to divest of their asset. But they don't call me with the the disgruntled, I want out. You don't have that kind of visceral, emotional reaction to an asset that kicks out a lot of cash. Yeah. So usually it's I'm burnt out and I have this, this all like intertwined. So they haven't separated to then chart those paths differently because yeah. it can be completely different. They can be completely different. So a lot of, I think a lot of the anxiety comes from the confusion. They don't know what they want out. They don't, they aren't thinking, oh. I'm going to do my job now between eight and five, but you know, once a month I'm going to have an owner's meeting and we're going to talk about ownership issues. You know, the, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, the anxiety that gets created in the stress by not having that clear in your mind, I, I yep. think it contributes to a lot of that. Well, and, and, and as we roll into the three financial targets and some of the financial uh, language that we're going to start to interject into the, the, the podcast series, I think we're going to help people with that clarity but like to your point pat like i think about how much stress and anxiety i was i had when i was running the business or even years after not knowing this stuff and how much anxiety goes away when you can talk when you're going this is how it works i need to discuss these things with pat who we have a new partner right that we talked about with matt matt was on the 300th episode he bought in we talked about ownerships we had a partnership agreement and then we talked about how we're going to get paid for our jobs and like that would not have been easy that would have been so stressful and I would have been trying to protect equity had I not been able to discuss things like this. And so I think to your point, education provides the ability to just, you know, have a, a mature conversation, <laughs> which is what we want. For the, for your listeners, this, this is just really important to get straight in your mind, your ownership role versus your, your management or employee role. It's just, it's, it's one of the things that 
I think is one of the most important things for people to learn. So before we get into cash flow provided by operating activities, which is, which is we're going to we're going to push it off a little bit. These three financial targets, I think, help clarify that asset. You want to walk through the three and then we'll then we'll start uh, taking one of them and diving into it. And, and one of them relates to you being an employee. So it's your ideal annual income. So when you're working at a company and you have to be the owner, so you have both, you need to think, OK, what is my. What is, the, what is the income I want from this business? Support my lifestyle, reward me for what I'm doing, those kind of things. And I'm not talking about selling the business and what kind of income do I need. I'm just talking about while you're in the business, what is it? What's my market value for the job I'm doing? And, and what is it that I, I take out of that? That is one thing that you need to think about. Um, and again, people sometimes take way more out of the business than than the job's worth, and sometimes they take what, what's what's less. So I, th- I think that's really important to get straight. What is the what is the annual income that makes sense for the business and makes sense for me? And and those are two things that tie into that first target, right? Because you it, like for example, we can put a number to it. Let's say it's your desire to have two hundred grand in cash flow for the rest of your life. You could be part of your job right now in the so you could be getting the wages from the company. But let's say you had some real estate income coming in, or you were doing you were sitting on a, a board. You're still there's a a different combination of ways you could get the 200 grand, which might, again, by clarifying where you're getting that income and the sustainability of that, then you can go and we're going to help calibrate the business as an asset. But I just wanted to clarify, it doesn't have to be just from the the business. It could be from anywhere. Yep, that's right. I mean, if you serve on a board or you, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it might be can be part of that income. But just thinking about in terms of what's my job, what am I doing? What's the what's the what's the market wage for that? Then you have to balance that against, you know, your lifestyle and, and those kinds of things as a business owner. But you, you got to start at that place. And the, the next target is what assets have you been able to accumulate outside the value of the business? So some people are lucky enough as they are, you know, own a business and they're going through, they're taking out money, they're, they're maxing their 401k, you know, they're taking some distributions and investing it in other unrelated entities, you know, real estate or just stock market, whatever it is. What have you been able many, to accumulate outside the business? How many times have we? How many times have we seen where there's a business where the thank God they bought the the building thirty years ago because the buildings are worth more than the actual business, but it's a real asset that's got equity that provides you a certain amount of choices. Yep, yep. Like I say, a lot of a lot of business owners they haven't been able to sock away a ton on that, but some have, and and you know whatever diversifying is a good thing, but. A lot of times that there are limitations on that, Mm -hmm. um, on on that. And the third one is the value of the business. And again, in most cases, it's the largest asset that people have. um, And understanding what that value is, is critically important. And uh, those are the three elements. What's your ideal annual income? What assets have been able to save outside the business? And what's the value of your business Mm -hmm. today? And when you start putting it down on paper, and you know me, I think math can solve most all the problems of the world. You wouldn't put it on paper. You would put it in a spreadsheet. But then I would print the paper. Um, <laughs> and so um, I, it, it just starts to frame up the view of your business and, and lays a foundation so that you can plot a strategy for the future. Mm-hmm. So that at some point in life, you have choices that, and, that you, and that those you choices- do with that business and you, and you, and you do with your life. 
Well, and you said choices and like with these three financial targets and these choices, we don't care what people do, right? Like we want them to have a decision-making framework so they have the highest probability of getting what they want long-term. That's it. Like, and these three financial targets provide a framework to understand your decision-making. So for example, if you wanted 200 grand, there was a coaching call that Matt and I were on recently and, you know, someone wants to target $200,000 in, in annual income, but they wanted to replace their job and hire someone. So now they're like, hey, I wanna to get to the point where I can get 200 grand in consistent distributions and be able to afford that person. But they're starting with the annual income first to then say, how long do I have to get there? But it, it, my point is that's not right or wrong. It's just, that's what they wanted. And it provided them some framework to, to make that decision. And let's let's if if we can let's talk a minute about the value of the business. Absolutely, um, let's do it. Because a lot of people will make up a number, or they'll be in a social setting, and so, you know we're all proud of what we they build a great business, and you know they're, they're we're all proud of it and all that kind of stuff. And somebody say, uh, you know, somebody say, oh, I just sold my business for ten million dollars. I'm making up a number. And, you know, they're like, oh, my business is worth $10 million. <laughs> you know, they have <laughs> no idea what their business is worth. Um, and most most people don't. I mean, we have we have cohorts of people going through coaching. And one of the one of the goal we had one today. Um, one of the goals people says is I want to learn what my, what my business is worth. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know. Well, because I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's not this top line golf course social setting number because we give the example somebody's business could have a value of ten million dollars which is a big number they could have nine million dollars of debt and ten partners <laughs> let me guess they're not going to tell everybody they walked away with a couple grand right no, they're, they're not going to sold- tell people their business is worth ten million dollars understand when we talk about what is your business worth today in this context when you're thinking about these these three numbers that the financial numbers that you need to track it is if you sold the business today not saying you are if you sold it today how much money would go in your pocket Mm -hmm. that's what your business is worth and we analogize it to a house if you have a house that's worth four hundred thousand dollars and you owe three hundred ninety thousand dollars on it and you sold it today and you paid off the loan you had some transaction costs in the in the form of a broker or a real estate broker, you may walk away with nothing after you pay the mm-hmm. loan and pay the commissions. And that's and so because that's what's really important because that's what that's what you would go in your pocket today. And setting that baseline then says, okay, here's where I am today. Hopefully it's not zero. Here's where I am today. Here's where I want to be in two years, five years, ten years, twenty years. And then you can start to develop strategies to get you down that path to make progress. And before we get to that, the kind of the three layers there of enterprise equity net proceeds, kind of just what you had just described, we're going to unpack that. But, you know, you, you said something that I want sure the people listening in just absolutely take away is that <laughs> this is about growing a valuable asset that gives you choices. You're building something valuable so you have the option to sell it at some point down the road. Right. Like this whole like thing with exit planning, the word exit and strategies just bothers me. You need to prepare, but like you don't have an exit plan for your Apple stock. <laughs> like it's ridiculous. You go, I hope it continues to grow in value. So that way, when and how I might need the liquid liquidation, it's meets my financial needs. 
Yeah, and and and, and so it's just that that growing an asset and being an investor, I think it kind of almost eliminates the exit planning jargon because it's like I just want to grow value and have the ability to optimize the transaction when and how I want to do it. And so the amount of times you and I have seen people just make numbers up and put it on their personal financial statement with no, <laughs> or like some of these free software valuations that are out there these days. I mean, like what what we do know is that you and you came from private equity. We talked to private equity firms all day long. They buy companies and they track and measure the value until they sell them at some point. And so we want to talk about how they're doing that. And so when you were working, I don't, we don't have to start with you working on the PE firm, but like, let's talk about the three, the three main fraud terms that we brought up of enterprise equity net proceeds. So even though you're not selling, you can track these things, but first let's talk about what those three things are and why they matter. Sure. So the, the top level is enterprise value. That's the Again, we're going to stick with the house analogy. That is the market value, the top line price, you know, of, of your business. Um, if, if you had, in our example, you have a house that's worth, you go into Zillow or Realtor.com or whatever, and it, your house is worth $400,000. In a business, that would be what uh, the enterprise value would be. And it's, it's, I don't know if you want to go there now, but. Purchase, purchase price you're talking about? Or? Yeah, it's purchase price. It's all those things. But that value comes from the sustainability, predictability, mm-hmm. and transferability of the cash flow of the business. Anytime somebody buys the business, the, the first reason they're looking at in order to, do, to buy a business is because of its projected cash flow in mm-hmm. the future. So that, yeah, is why, I, that, is, I, that is why they're buying it, is to get that cash flow. Well, and let, let it, let's do dive into that. So for the listeners in, you can go back and reference Dr. Craig Everett's uh, podcast I did from Pepperdine, where we, him and I started introducing this topic of intrinsic financial value based on the, the value based on the risk of the cash flow versus a strategic transaction value. But I'm just going to give my basic definition, Pat, and then we'll talk about like how that's actually calculated. Um, well, it, we'll figure out how we want to go with this, but like the the intrinsic financial value, this is what is knowable while someone owns a company, right? So when you had the private equity firm, you say, okay, here's roughly the cash flow, here's roughly the valuation while we own it. We we might have a strategic buyer down the road that pays a premium for various reasons, which, you know, if you're maximizing purchase price, that's going to be something you want, but they're they're starting at that knowable transact or the intrinsic financial value. The intrinsic value is the value of the business based on its cash flows as they exist today without any other reason that somebody would want to own it. So just risk of the cash flow. Just, just risk like of the cash flow. Estate. If I've, if I, if I, you got two businesses and one's got um, uh, one customer that accounts for 90% of their business, same business, same size, same earnings, same everything. And the other one is like, oh, no, no customer accounts for more than 5% of the business. The second one's going to be worth more than the first one because the first one has riskier cash flow. That one customer goes away, their cash flow goes away. So the the risk of the cash flow as the business exists today helps you understand the intrinsic value of the business, which is which is the enterprise value. Well, somebody may have a reason I- to pay more or less for mm-hmm. the business down the road, hopefully not less, but um, uh, but that's over and above 
Mm-hmm. The the intrinsic value. That's where you get to transactional value. Somebody comes along and says, I need your business operations in this geographic reason. I you bring an expertise of people that I can't go out and build, so I'm gonna buy it. I, you know, uh whatever whatever that might be, they're like, I'm gonna pay a premium to just the the intrinsic value because the sum of the two is great, you know is greater than just adding them together. If you put these two mm-hmm. businesses together, it's not just one plus one equals two. It's one plus one ends up being three. So I'm willing to pay that extra to get to that three as mm-hmm. opposed to, to, to that. But the, but the intrinsic financial value is what you can measure and monitor and can be your base case until somehow somewhere down the road you want to accept the terms and conditions of that potential strategic buyer and just to use our own examples we had two offers one was almost half the other as the other one because one was complete you know redundancy eliminate Is this your family business yep yep the family business that we sold and so like with all the redundancies and synergies you could you know, get almost double, but they, they got the company. I mean, and that was their that was their choice, and that was why they bought the business. But the other one, the intrinsic value was less because they wanted to keep all the operations. And that just to kind of for the listeners here, in principle, one, what do you want from your business? Why that doesn't mean you have to maximize per, uh, purchase price. So if you want more choices, you want essentially want to focus on having the intrinsic financial value as your base case, so you can have all those choices. So Pat, you had tied that into then the enterprise value. So you got your EBITDA, you know, your cash flow, and then you've got a multiple that equals the enterprise value. So you want to kind of give a little bit of just, we don't have to go too far into this, but just kind of just so people can understand the concepts. I mean, you introduced EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's a proxy for cash flow. So that's when people are saying, and that's what the investment world looks like. They're like, what's your EBITDA? And that's what people use as the as the the number to determine the value. It's it's just an accepted way in the in the, in the investment world, and it's, and it's pretty good metric. We you know we have other training that defines and goes into it in great detail. Somebody assess the risk of that cash flow, and through math, it turns into a multiple, which is what people, which is what people in the marketplace say. Somebody paid me five x for my EBITDA, 7X for my EBITDA, 10X for my EBITDA. That's just the number of times that somebody's willing to pay for your EBITDA. So if you had a $100,000 EBITDA. Let's use a million Let's use a million dollar EBITDA and we can just kind of roll with this. Okay, well, that's a lot. <laughs> a million and somebody's going to pay you a seven, a seven multiple. They're going to pay you $7 million enterprise value for your business. And obviously... If it was a, a five, it would be five million. The five million they would view if you and I had the same business, same size, same million dollars of EBITDA, but somebody's willing to pay you seven for yours, only five for mine. They've assessed that mine's riskier for some reason. Mm-hmm. Customer concentration, don't have a good management team. My financials are a mess. You know, whatever, whatever, you know, no sales function that would be in my company. You know, so, um, <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, it, it's a way of assessing risk, but that all translates into a multiple, which is what the marketplace deals with. And in your interview with with uh, Pepperdine uh, professor, they gather all this kind of information on multiples and debt and structure mm-hmm. and all these other kind of things. But that's what the marketplace talks about. But it's a way to it's a number to apply to your cash flow in order to get an enterprise value. 
And, and that goes back to the baseline to say, hey, for directional planning purposes, I know within a range, it's four to six. Okay, that's four to six million dollars. Like hey, within a range, it's not four to you know 20 million. Like I, I, can, I can make some decisions roughly on that kind of tight constraint. Someone might pay an eight for the reasons you and I have discussed, but for planning purposes as viewing my company as an asset, let's assume five, just making this up. And that's the enterprise value purchase price. So if you're like 90% or maybe more of wealth managers, the $5 million goes on the personal financial statement and right. you're rolling your eyes for the people that are they're just listening right. in. I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. They do. But that's not where the story ends because if it's, and, and we use valuation folks, uh, partners of ours to help people mm-hmm. understand this. This is not a stab in the dark. This is not saying, oh, well, let's just apply a five multiple to it when the marketplace is a three or a, and done. Let's a move seven. On. <laughs> yeah, let's just make numbers up. We work with people and, and they help us out with clients to, to kind of come up with that baseline value. And then we can use that information going forward. But in, in, when you go from enterprise value to equity value, almost in deals of almost any size, I mean, the smaller ones this doesn't apply to, but deals for, for the clients we deal with, the seller almost always keeps their cash and has to pay off their debt, their funded debt, their bank loans or line of credit, things like that. Not accounts payable, not those kind of things. That can have a huge impact. And we had a client who thought his company was worth X and that's what he had on his personal balance sheet, but he had a bunch of debt. You know, he wasn't factoring that in. So in our example, if you have a million dollar EBITDA and a five multiple, it's worth $5 million. If you have zero cash and zero debt, your equity value is $5 million. Mm -hmm. If you have a half million dollars of cash and $3 $3 million of debt. Now your equity value is two and a half million dollars. You get to keep your cash. So five plus a half million is five and a half less the $3 million of debt is two and a half. And the story ends there, right? You get two and a half million bucks in your, in your bank. <laughs> of course not. Um, but I, you should pause and think about that. Two companies that are both worth $5 million, just the very next layer down to go from enterprise to equity, one's still worth $5 million and one's worth half. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and, and maybe here's a good time to insert where like that, the, the three things that when I was doing this uh, panel with a private equity firm, he goes, we do three things when we buy a company, we increase the EBITDA, we increase the multiple and we pay down debt. The one that you're referring to right now is, Hey, if we kept this company for another two years and didn't increase the EBITDA and didn't cre- increase the multiple, we could literally do, I mean, if we just paid down the two and a half million bucks in debt, we just walk away with 5 million bucks. Yep. And you got to weigh that against what else could you do with that money? Mm-hmm. You know, but you're getting, if you have a five multiple, you're getting five times that money. It's hard to go out in the marketplace and find another place to match that kind of use of cash. You know, you're not going to go into the S&P and, 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 and do that. But you just described the things we've been through already. EBITDA, mm-hmm. multiples, debt. I mean, those mm-hmm. are the three levers you can pull. Um, in order, in order to drive up the equity value of your, of, of your business, and back to your the house, house, I know. <laughs> back to the house scenario. If you have a four hundred thousand dollars house and three hundred thousand dollars of debt, your equity value is a hundred. If you had a four hundred thousand dollars house and no debt, you had your loan paid off. The equity value is four hundred thousand dollars. 
400 versus 100, same concept in business valuation mm-hmm. that, that, and, and that's so important, you know, people at the, in a social setting or talking to their friends or whatever, don't say, oh, well, my business is worth 5 million, but I've got 3 million of debt. So it's really only <laughs> worth two. They just, they just don't say that. And they're not thinking that. That's the right. worst part. I don't care what they tell their friends, to be honest with you. Um, but the worst you part is, know the truth. <laughs> the worst part is they're they're not they're not understanding it themselves. It's not they're lying to themselves. They just mm-hmm. they just don't understand. Well, and and this go and it kind of goes into when you talked about like what's the best use of cash. I just want to put put a pause there and and unpack that because you know most entrepreneurs. I mean, the amount of amount of people that have been on my show, or a lot of entrepreneurs that I know, they're like, well. Okay, got it. They they would have heard that and said, I'm going to pay down debt for the next two years because I understand as a non-finance person how to pay off debt. And that makes sense versus in the, in the world of looking at your company as an asset and working with a CFO of what's the best use of cash. Well, if you increase your EBITDA from a million to two million and you increase your multiple from five to seven, don't pay off that debt, right? Like just, I mean- if using that money gets you to be able to increase your EBITDA and which will expand your multiple, then a better use of cash is to do that as opposed to pay down the debt. Yeah. And and those are the decisions that become diff- more clear and you think about them differently when you're thinking about your company as an asset and you're working with someone like yourself or a CFO that's saying, okay, here's the choices we have. doesn't mean, even though you could do something like that, doesn't mean... That's preference. Yeah, could be someone else's choose not to do it, else. but at least you've armed with the information to make the decision. Right. I want to take right. this money, invest to grow my EBITDA, which hopefully expand my multiple and my company and be worth more. Or, nope, I understand that, but I want to pay down the debt. Okay, that, that's your, that's your choice. But at least you're making the decision in, in with a clear head and, and clear understanding of what the choices are. You're being intentional. Being intentional. How about that? <laughs> so then you walk away with two and a half million bucks and you put it in your bank, right? If, if you have if you have the two and a half million in debt, five million valuation enterprise, because most people have transaction costs, they're paying a broker, a, an investment bank or a lawyer, whatever, whatever that is. So you've got some and you've got some transaction costs. Then you got to pay your taxes on the gain, you know, and we're not going to get into the calculation of capital gains taxes. But, the, you know, there is going to be there is going to be tax on the gain and and what state you live in depends on that. If you live in Florida, there's no state income tax. You live in Minnesota, Minnesota, 9.85%, you know, in Ohio, it's four and a half, you know, it's, um, it's different. So then those transaction costs and the gain take something else off. So if, if out of that two, you know, um, depending on the math, if, if you're, uh, let's just use 30%, just as a round number. So on a $5 million, 30% is a million and a half, you put three and a half million dollars in your pocket. So on if a five and a half, five million, five million dollar equity. equity value, trans, enterprise equity, you end up with three and a half million dollars. If you had no debt, just to be, if I just you had want no to make debt. sure that that's. Yep. On the two and a half million, you know, you've got $750,000 of transaction cost and, and taxes. So two and a half, Minus the the seven hundred fifty. Now you're at a million seven fifty. If my math is right, well, so and, out of and a and five million dollar business, you're putting a million seven fifty in the bank. I'm not making light of a million seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's a right. lot of money. But if you've got seven million dollars or five million dollars on your personal financial statement, and you've got a wealth advisor telling you you're set, nothing to worry about. 
and it's really a million seven fifty, mm-hmm. the math doesn't work. Well, and, and I just want to do a quick little like reverse back into what most people are talking about at the country club or at the CEO peer group, and then go all the way back and then continue our conversation. So if you're doing a million dollars in EBITDA, let's hypothetically say you had 10% EBITDA. That's a $10 million revenue business we're talking about here. We've been talking about enterprise value, which is how you should be thinking about things even more. So you should be thinking about your equity value, but what this person hypothetically who has this company is telling everybody, my business does 10 million in revenue and I have 60 employees and everybody thinks they're the king of the world. And it's like, well, they would only based on the things we just talked about, walk away with 1.7 million. It's like you said, 1.7 is a lot of money. It's all about the expectations. <laughs> if well, they have and, what million three, the- and what your three financial targets are. million may may satisfy somebody Mm -hmm. and it may fall woefully short with another person. Mm -hmm. But some people, you're talking about vanity metrics. Oh, I've got 10 million revenue. I've got 60 employees. I'm in four states. I'm all great things. But when you think about your business as an asset, how much money would you put in your pocket today if you sold it? Walking through that exercise, going through what's called the waterfall to get to that bottom line number. Um, Which is what, what we call net proceeds, right? Net proceeds. It's just net proceeds. It's 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 uh, it's critically important because it frames decision making. Mm-hmm. Somebody, some businesses may go through this section. I say, man, this is the number I need. So now everything above that is gravy. Doesn't happen very often, at least in in, in the world that I live in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, most people are like, you got to be kidding me. Can we check that math? Um, because there's got to be a mistake in there somewhere. And when there's not, they're like, okay, now I need to go from a million seven fifty. I need to grow my EBITDA, try and expand my multiple by de-risking my company, and I need to pay down some debt. So I go from a million seven fifty to four, whatever that number might be. Mm-hmm. And I want to do that in X time period. So it's like, okay, let's work together to develop strategies, decide how to use the cash flow of the company to make investments to get you to that place so that you have a choice about what to do because at 4 million net proceeds, you've got choices. And and those choices manifest them in themselves in a way of Pat calls me up and says, I want to buy your business, Ryan. And I want to fire half your employees and take you out of that you know community that you've been in for 30 years. And I can go, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. If it didn't fit with me and my personal values and my principal one, but if it does, sure. Like it's, it's that decision-making framework that you were thinking about. And this net proceeds, like you were talking about, Pat, from the enterprise to equity value to net proceeds while you own it. And we're going to talk about how that shows up in the financial statements. But this is why, you know, the whole exit planning, like this is just viewing it as a business asset, as the business as an asset to say, like, every month, this is how much would go in my bank account if someone bought my business at the baseline intrinsic financial value. SBA will loan off of it and ESAP will deal with it and, and a private equity firm. We could hold our hold our own to say that it's truly the base case that most people have no idea. So they have no idea how to make these decisions outside of this information. Yep. You're exactly, you're exactly right. It's uh, you got to You got to know where you are today. You've got to decide where you want to be in the future to plot that path to get there. I mean, it's back to your Google maps, you know, it's like, what's point B and then what's the path we're going to take to get there. It, mm-hmm. you know, uh, unless people have unrealistic expectations, most times that we find when we deal with clients, 
they've overshot, they overthink where they are. So they're not quite where they are. And when they say they want to be, they think, well, I never get there. Well, let's build it out. Let's model it out to say if we can grow revenue and, and normalize the EBITDA and, and invest our money in a way where we get a good return. Most times you're like, here's the path. We have a client, mm-hmm. actually, they won't mind me saying this. We actually call that the path <laughs> to get there. And even you will... in the in the language of the company, it's like, well, everybody understands the path to 2026. We're getting to the point where we're and gonna... he'll, he'll be on the he will be on the podcast, too. <laughs> we, let's don't we won't we won't give too many names. But but it, it's 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 just having that mindset where with that client, we're on a path. That's what you want to do. Well, and, and so and they have no, it, it's really important. And maybe you can speak to it. This is not, uh, this thinking is not for people who are intent on selling their business in the near future. This is it not would still be helpful. Huh? Oh, it's super it helpful. Still, but, but we get clients who call, we get potential clients who call us and say, I want to sell my business in the next six months. What can you guys do to help me to get it ready? And we're like, nothing. In the, in the house analogy, that's equivalent to hiring the painter that comes in with the white paint and sprays all the mold with the paint and says, we're about, and it's the Chris Lindahl here in the Twin Cities, like, we'll buy your house guaranteed offer. Well, at the right, of course, at the price that it's worth. But, but I, I want to talk about how this is, how this shows up in the financial statements and what I used to think prior to understanding all this, Pat, was I will never forget. I was in my office with uh, one of my really good friends, dear friends, and he's a he was one of my salespeople at the time. And I'm like, we can be a hundred million dollar company. We can dominate the Twin Cities for all technology and not telecom and this and that. Zero clue how to do that besides sell more stuff. <laughs> like the strategies were fairly good. I mean, there was good strategies within that, and because it was pretty consistent in the marketplace, but. What happened is I didn't realize that there was this push, like how many things that were, that needed to, I needed to understand the trade-offs of, let's say we're growing at 20%, all of a sudden, like we only have a certain amount of cash flow that's got to go towards debt, towards distributions, towards, you know, investing back in the company. And I had no idea how all of those things interplayed at all. So it's like, we'd take some money out for some personal stuff. We'd go like hire these people and then we'd go, wait, where's the money? So walk... (laughs) I didn't have you. I was not working with you. So you can roll your eyes. I'd be happy happy to have you roll your eyes. (laughs) Yeah. When when you want to develop this, uh, the plan for growth and and growing the plan for growth of the value of the asset of your business. People say, I want to grow my revenue from five to 10 million. Okay. That doesn't mean much to me. Does that, does that, does that make your business worth more or worth less? I don't know. Um, You know, but Translating all this in, into financials that you can lay out going into the out years and saying, what does that do? Are, are these strategies that we want to implement, if they achieve the numbers that we think they will, what will that do to the value of my business? It is looking at the business in a whole different light as opposed to, is there an extra $20,000 to take out to go buy something? Mm-hmm. You go from that to say, you know what? I'm reinvesting the business. I'm getting a good return on these investments. And my net proceeds could go from a million seven fifty to four million in five years. It can it can just get that clear. Of course, they're based on projections and and things can go different, but when they're well thought out, you can gain that kind of clarity. 
which I'm telling you just provides a whole bunch of comfort oh, to people. Oh my gosh. Like you don't have, it's just waking up and waking up and executing is way more enjoyable than waking up and wondering. And so when you're talking about viewing your company as an asset and taking this like one, you know, essentially eliminating the wonder and just looking at execution, even though I tried at the deepest part of my soul to deny it was part of the financials. <laughs> yes, that's where that's where all these answers lie. And when I had when I had gone through this education over these years, Pat, like it went from like this like fragmented kind of confusing world to like the one one of our clients is like, like it was like taking the red pill in the matrix. It's like boom. You can just see the zeros and ones. And that's really what happened to me. And when you and I give the um, these presentations or workshops, to, I talk about viewing your company in three-dimensional. And it's by using these three financial statements. And I want you to kind of walk through how they're tied together and what that possibility allows us to do into the future. And before you do, just like, you know, what what we used to do, 20 million in, in revenue and the amount of companies I've now seen do this, like we're absolutely the norm. Look at your income statement. Go, we're doing 20% growth straight up. This is going to be awesome. And I look at my bank account, look at the checking account, go, we have enough cash to, to do what we need to do tomorrow, pay for payroll on Thursday. But there's no tying that bigger vision, all those trade-offs to where we're going. And these the answer lies in these three statements. And like I said, I tried to deny it. I thought it was bubble thought charts. It was all in the sales plan. You know, thought all the answers were in the, and there are a lot of answers in the sales plan, but not all of them. To sell more stuff. <laughs> I know. You know, and we won't, we're not trying to turn people into accountants or, or financial engineers, but if you're a business owner, you you get financial statements. Hopefully they're useful, timely, and accurate, which are the three criteria. But the income statement is just the, you know, the revenue and the less expenses to get net income. From there, you can calculate EBITDA um, from that. It's just a math exercise. It's over a period of time, a month, a quarter, a year, whatever, whatever time it is. And, and the balance sheet is just a listing of a statement of your assets, your liabilities, and your equity. The assets are things you own, receivables, cash, uh, real estate, equipment, you know, liabilities, what you owe, accounts payable, um, accrued expenses, and debt, whatever debt you have. The equity part is, is the sum of what you've put in as an owner, plus and minus all the, the accumulation of profits and losses over the years. Everything, if you think about when you make a sale and you've got revenue, well, you don't have, it, the, the other side of that goes on receivables. Somebody, in most businesses, somebody owes you that money. So the day you deliver the product, deliver the service, and record the sale and send the invoice to the customer, you, you've recorded revenue, but you've got, which is on the income statement, but on the balance sheet, you've got your accounts receivable. That's the way accounting works, and that's perfectly correct. On the other side, if you um, when you sell something or or you buy inventory, you know you put the inventory on your books, and the other side is accounts payable. Those are both on the balance sheet. Or if you have some expenses, they go on accounts payable. Run through that payroll. or accru- payroll, payroll, accrual payroll, all those kind of things. I'm saying all that because the income statement, which most people look at, but a lot of times you just look at the bottom line number, say, okay, we made some money. And then on the balance sheet, they say, oh, we've got cash. Let's go spend some today. Or we don't have cash. Let's don't spend any today. That's that's the extent of how they look at those two statements. But everything ends up running through cash. Explain what you mean by that. 
what I mean by that is you invoice your customer and eventually they pay. So the, the revenue is the other side of it's receivable. The receivable ends up turning into cash. Inventory ends up turning into cash. You know, you buy inventory. Once you sell it, it runs through, you know, uh, cost of goods sold and ends up on the invoice. It goes to the customer, ends up through cash. You accrue payroll and you pay your people. That ends up, it could be a liability at the end of the month, but the next week when you pay the payroll, it runs through cash. Everything eventually runs through cash. You buy equipment. You may, you may pay for it out of your checkbook. It runs through cash. You may borrow money. The debt, you, you put the debt on your books and you get cash. And then as you pay it off, it all ends up running through cash. And the statement that people are missing out of the three financial statements is the statement of cash flows, which will, and it's hard to describe on a podcast or even, even though we're videotaping, we don't have the examples, but it's a statement that shows where your money comes from and where it goes. And in my opinion, the most critical line on it is the statement of cash flow from operations, which takes into account the profit that you make and the changes in your receivables, your inventory, your payables, you know, your line of credit, if, if you have one, it's all those what we call working capital, all the things related to the operations of your business. Are the operations of your business generating positive cash flow? And it's so interesting, Pat, like I want to pause there because like Dr. Craig Everett from that Pepperdine podcast, he was getting into the cost of capital and like, you know, a lot of technical terms. And when you do, like, you just, you just broke it down into that much more simple terms. Like, you, are you generating more cash flow tomorrow than you did yesterday? And like you're just continuing if you're if you're generating cash additional cash flow from operations, your business is growing in the right direction. If it's generating negative cash flow from operations, it's not heading in the right direction. The first thing that you do every single time we onboard a client, you roll out these three statements and then you go to that line, you go, look at what's going on. And you would like sum up all the last 12 months and you go, this is what happened. Oh, this is what the this is the story the business is telling us. Well, and when we say a business, the intrinsic value of a business is based on its cash flows, 90 percent of businesses don't have a statement of cash flows. So how would you know how sustainable, predictable, and transferable it is? And these three And we've got graphs, are... and we've, we've had clients where we've literally had to go to clients. We took their information. We say, here's your EBITDA, and, which is your proxy for cash flow. Here's your cash flow from operations. Look how up and down and unpredictable it is. It's, and... it's, it's driving down the value of your business. And it's not only being able to identify and see that cash flow, but then what are you going to do to make it more sustainable, predictable, and transferable? And I and you know we're again just for the listeners in here, like in the in the show notes, we've got a, a financial assessment that Pat and I created based on these four components. You can go and get a score, and you, we actually show what good looks like. So if you want to see an example of all this stuff, go take the the assessment. Again, it's like twenty two questions. You don't need your financials. And Pat and I, we've got five videos where Pat and I are walking through a case study. You can actually see what good looks like. So if you actually want to put a little bit of like tangible, like visibility into what we're talking about there, you can go take the assessment and it's, you know, it'll be able to get access to all that. And for the rest of this conversation, we just want to talk about when you tie these three together, what's possible. And like Pat just said, 95% of people don't use the cash flow statement, which all it is is a snapshot in the mathematical difference between the balance sheet of two periods of time. So it's truly just math. You don't have to make this stuff up. You just need to tie all three of these together. And so 
the fact that only like very few, if almost any people use the cash flow statement, then what gets even more rare, Pat, that you and I have not only from interviewing like and looking through like almost a thousand CFO resumes, been hiring these people is like how many people project all three statements out into the future? I mean, I've seen, I can count almost on both hands. And what, like, first of all, why do you need to project out all three statements? And why do you think most people don't? I'm going to take those in reverse order. Most people don't because they, they think it's too hard to do. And this, if I hope this hasn't sound overwhelming to do. This is not hard to do. To, to do the three statements, to get your statement of cash flow. I mean, double entry accounting has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it is a mathematical exercise. So once you get it set up in a model, it just you just get it automatically. So it's it's not hard to do. I think the it's, reason people don't it's, it's well, it's it's like you you've you've actually I'm gonna play with your words here because you've usually said it's not complicated. It's just hard work. It's it's work to do, but it's not it's not complicated in the sense, oh, I could never understand this or my account. You're not creating never... AI or something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> it's not, you're not building the Mars rover here. It's, it's just, <laughs> you know, it takes some effort, a little bit of effort, but uh, it, it's not difficult to do. I think most people don't do it because they don't understand it and they don't understand the benefit of it. The reason you want to do it is you want to get your historical information accurate so that you can use that to predict into the future. And when you budget and prepare projections for the second, third, fourth, and fifth year out from your budget, the reason you want to do that is you may have these tremendous growth plans. We're going to open three new offices. We're going to, sales are going to go up by a third every year, and uh, we're going to build inventory so we're never out. we got to hire 12 people. Do one question. The first question is, do the cash flow from operations support those investments? Wouldn't that be nice to know? (laughs) Or am I going to have to put money in as an owner or am I going to have to go borrow money? Or raise money, give or raise money, sell some equity. Yeah, Yeah. whatever, whatever path you want to do. But if you know that, because growth, I've never been a business owner who didn't want to grow their company. Growth is risky and can be expensive. So it's just putting the math to it to say, if we if we have these strategies and they work like we think we are, what is what is our income statement, our balance sheet, and our statement of cash flows look like three years from now? Mm-hmm. So we can plan. Oh, my cat, you know, if receivables just grows tremendously, that's a use of cash. You may have to support that with a line of credit. If you can go to your bank and say, here are our plans. We want a line of credit if this happens so we can support the, our, our working capital, our inventory, and our AR. I'm telling you, bankers, will be, if you can hand them a three-statement model out three or four or five years, they're just going to say yes. And if, your bank, <laughs> and if your banker won't call me, and I'll, I'll put you on to one who, who, probably, who probably will. Because it shows that you've thought about the business, what the strategies, the, implica- the financial implications of the strategies are when you implement them, you're not just, you're not just guessing. Well, and you just talked about integrating your strategies into the three statements to see if the cash flow from operations over the next three years can fund the strategies while paying for the taxes and taking into, into consideration the distributions that you want. So going back to and debt payments that you may have debt. to make and, yeah, yeah, like those are the sec- just, below the cash flow from operations is the financing and the and the and the investing, which is what you're talking about. Can uh, you know uh, how many times are business owners surprised at tax time? 
because they have Every no, time? they don't have the cash to to pay it. Well, you can project this out. Well, and I, I just think about like, I mean, not only did we deal with do this, and it was we're guilty of it because we it was an accident. We didn't know is we went, we bought, we took some money out, we bought some things, and then four months later, we're like. Shit, we don't have any cash. Like, how are we supposed to pay for this stuff? Then you go to the bank and you say, hey, we need upper line of credit and take out a loan. You're like, well, well, didn't you just buy it like a, you know, buy something four months ago? So it's just like this constant firefight trying to figure out the trade-offs for a finite amount of resources. And going back to the decision-making framework that you were talking about, like, hey, if here's where we're going for the strategies, here's how we have to fund them, here are taxes, the distributions, and we're short, what do we do about it and what are we willing to do? That's a way clearer decision that is just intentional and say, okay, like I'm willing to give up this or that or the other thing. Anyways, let's, let's for the, for the sake of time, how do we layer in enterprise equity and net proceeds into these three statements so people can see it like even more clearly? Right. So when you have these, <coughs> when you have these three statements, you can then calculate, and we didn't get into it, but normalized EBITDA, you know, uh, so project out the cash flow. Apply multiples that are appropriate for your size company, your industry, and your kind of risk profile. Run it through the waterfall that says, because now you've projected out your debt, so now you, and your cash balance, so now you can go from enterprise to equity value if you've got the three statements. Mm-hmm. You get to equity value, you do the math on taxes and, and transaction costs. You can literally then, we call it the value gap analysis, but you can then project out what your net proceeds would be at every stage along the way based on the assumptions that you built in, into these financials. It, it's not perfect, but boy, it, it is, provides clarity because it's not perfect because the actual results will be different. Mm-hmm. But it just says, oh, I can go from a million seven fifty in net proceeds at the end of 2022 to $4, $4 million at the end of 2026. If if my strategies translate into these financials, I've projected out all three statements, and here's how I'm going to fund growth, here's how I'm going to make distributions, here's the equipment I'm going to buy, here's how I'm going to pay down my debt, and here would be well, my it, net proceeds in 2026. It is it, it, it provides a layer of understanding, and I'm not, I'm not even sure what the word, it, it just relieves so much anxiety. Yeah, that, that's I think that's perfect, and I think about... You know, you and I have been fixated on this word progress, right? People making progress towards creating wealth, enjoying work, making an impact towards their point B, whatever that might be in whatever time frame it is. And when you have that point B, which is the three statements into some point in the future, the distribution of that value, everything you just talked about, if COVID hits, inflation from commodity prices, a nod of the boo offer happens, you're synthesizing it against your plan versus just making shit up. I mean, it's amazing how much anxiety comes into, I have no idea if I should answer that email from Pat, the private equity firm or not. Somebody comes along in our example and says, I'll give you a million and a half dollars for your company. Or even, even that would translate to a million and a half. If they say, we'll give you $4 million you're like, oh, that's going to translate to X. In three or four years, it's going to be worth Y. No, thank you. As opposed, Done. To, as opposed to having no idea if that's a good price or not, or if that's a good choice. And, and the whole point of this is to give yourself choices, understanding of what your situation is, where you're going, so that down the road, I don't care if it's two years, five years, 25 years down the road, you've got choices. 
um, that that's what that's what and, and along that way you're making progress towards those towards achieving those goals so I know as we're as we're getting uh, as we're wrapping up here what changes in people's demeanor their mindset the management team meetings from your experience because you've worked with people that don't understand this and then all of a sudden over the period of training or whatever like whatever circumstances ideally now they're working with us at some point but then you see where they're having these conversations with this knowledge how do how do you compare and contrast those two those two state of affairs um it's hard to describe because it it is literally a shift in mindset that they go from one of not knowing confusion and lack of lack of clarity to one where they're like okay i I get it now i understand the math i can see it on paper here the here's the results of the strategies i want to implement and it and they can say we're marching towards that goal and they can work with their employees employees want to work for companies that are growing in value they may not articulate it that way but it's just more job security more opportunity more people to employ you know if that's if that's the case and in aligning people's interest in growing the value of your company especially your leadership team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and there are ways to do that financially even to incentivize them but i've just i've seen it be almost transformational mm. when when owners go through this and uh and you've talked to some of them. I mean, we've all talked to them. It's just like before I wasn't thinking any way like this. And now I think completely different about my business. So, you know, that we, I like to ask a couple of questions. They're going to be a little bit different for you because we, we just live and breathe this stuff. I wanted to ask one before I ask what intentional means for you. But one is, why are you so passionate about this? And why are you so passionate about putting this much effort into this at your stage in career we mean my stage oh, <laughs> i'll tell you what i know for a fact there's got to be days where you're going what did ryan convince me to do as i'm slogging away <laughs> i've seen what success look looks like and i've seen what failure looks like and and i think people who own small to medium-sized businesses are at a disadvantage in the marketplace um i I've, I've seen people who look at their business as an asset and, and we do the strategy work, we implement it, we're disciplined, we're intentional about it. I've, I've seen this grow, uh, their, the value of their business just grow beyond their wildest dreams. I had a client once that told me, if you can sell my business for X, sell it. We got over 4X for that business because we, we were intentional. On, on the other side, what success doesn't look like, it... it we bought a company from somebody and paid them exactly what they asked for to the nickel. And we paid that person about a third of what their business was worth. I was working for the buyer, so it wasn't my job to tell him he was asking for too little. But I saw him sell his business for a fraction of what it was worth. And it's heartbreaking to see somebody go through that. And so I, I've, I'm, I, I love what we're doing because it can... It's, it's about the business owners that we work with. I get so much satisfaction with working with these people and seeing and working with them to make these changes and to help them realize their dreams. Because I think if 
if we do that, all the rest of it takes care of itself. It, it's it's literally paying it forward because when they're more successful, their employees are more successful, their businesses, their communities, their their families. It, it just it really has a, a a wide impact when 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 they get to this point where they're they're thinking about their business this way. Choices, right? I mean, reward for the hard work, man. It's not easy. So you know how you know how I end up the shows with asking what word what the word intentional means to you, and I think I did that with you and Matt a couple episodes ago. I don't remember uh, what I said. To, but. <laughs> we can cross reference it. So, what does the word intentional mean for you? Or you could uh, maybe I'll offer up a, uh, a a variation of that is what does the word intentional growth or what does the phrase intentional growth mean to you? Yeah, I don't know, take whatever one you want. Well, intentional is being purposeful with you know. Um, to me, when I think about it, I think about being pers- purposeful. Intentional growth, when it comes to a business, means growing for the right reasons with an end in mind in a way that, on a path that I can see, mm, as opposed like to that. just, well, I, I, hope it, I hope we get there. Let's just do this stuff, and we'll see in five years whether we get there. That's, that's, not, that's not being intentional. That's being hopeful. Um, and, and nothing wrong with being hopeful, but you can be intentional by laying out that path and, and knowing that if these strategies work out the way we think they might, here's, here's where we'll be all along the way. That that's intentional to me. Ooh, I love, you had, you had some good stuff there. And, uh, for the listeners, as, as we what about you, to... what does intentional mean to you? No, you're not getting off that easy. Uh, not not getting away. No, uh, no. <laughs> Clarity on where you want to be, that point B that we always talk about. And it's the multidimensional from the financials to your personal life, to the professional life, to the business. Like, what do you want all this to look like? And then charting a practical path forward. And for me, like all this stuff is so hard. I mean, being an entrepreneur and business and all this stuff that we have to deal with is very hard. So like waking up and knowing that you're making progress towards that is just enjoyable because I'm learning more about myself and making an impact and doing all the things that we want. So it's being clear and being very deliberate with the actions that we're taking every day and being able to say no to the stuff that does not get us closer towards that goal. And why so are there, you so passionate about this? Cause I, I think that education can truly open up people's eyes and cause I can't, I don't want to tell anybody what their point B looks like. It's up to them, right? I mean, it's your, your point B is different than mine is different than everybody else's. And it's like, as long as they can articulate that, and clarify it, then everybody, then they can help chart their own path. Cause I, we all do this because we don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> We're taking insane amounts of risk and stress to not be told what to do. So like this brings clarity to me where I like to wake up and execute and not wonder whether I'm on the right path or not. There we go. And so just for the listeners in, we're teeing up a couple more episodes. we got a couple more fun episodes as part of this series as how to view your company as a financial asset and a couple of case study stories that we're going to be bringing on. But also we're going to be bringing Pat back on as we're going to be talking about the role of the CFO and more of the financials to tie in to see how the visionary entrepreneur can actually leverage that that role, clarify that point B, and then help them hold, hold people accountable uh, in the decision-making framework. So till next week.
Well, I hope you enjoyed the banter uh, with Mr. Pat Hobby and I. I really enjoy doing the shows with him because uh, you can see kind of the magic behind some of the stuff uh, that we have done as we created the Intentional Growth Training. And just two different minds, two different uh, perspectives uh, come together to hopefully make it enjoyable for you to listen in. And there's one key concept I wanted to put an exclamation point on is that there's no wrong answer of whether you wanted a lifestyle business versus you wanted to grow a more valuable asset. The, the main takeaway is make a decision so your expectations are in line with what your outcome will eventually be because your decision making along the way is so different depending on what you're solving for. If you want more clarity on how to actually figure out whether you want a lifestyle business or create a more valuable asset, check out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment in the show notes or at arcona.io. It's 22 questions. You don't need your financials. And on the results page, it's Pat and I walking through what good looks like in videos, uh, going over a case study. And I think it would be very helpful to get that clarity so you can start making progress towards your goals. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And uh, stay tuned for episode two of Theme 2 where I'm going to be interviewing Ali Nasir, where Ali and I are going to be uh, unpacking his uh, his book he just wrote called The Business Owner's Dilemma. And it's going to be talking about how a wealth manager helps business owners understand their illiquid assets and really put some more clarity into the concepts that Pat and I just talked about. Again, thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.